Amen, amen. We'll just right now in the spirit of reverence and awe before a holy God, let's bow our heads before him. Let's humble ourselves. If there's any known sin in our lives, let's just freely confess that to him. We have not been living the way that the, the gospel calls us to live. If we've been harboring bitterness or unforgiveness, We've been giving in to the lusts and desires of our flesh. If we've been envious, if we've been dishonest, if we've been lackadaisical in our pursuit of you, if we have denied you in any way, Lord, we want to be pure before you want to enter into your holy presence, Lord, not based on our own righteousness, but based on the righteousness of Christ. Lord, 1 John 1 says that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness that you make available to us through Jesus Christ, that whatever burden we were bringing with us today, whether we were aware of it or you have just brought it to our mind by the power of your spirit, Lord, we confess those things freely to you. We thank you for your mercy and for your forgiveness. God, thank you that your word says that you cast our sin behind your back. Thank you that your word says that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far you've separated our sins from us. Thank you that although you are completely omniscient and know all things, you promise to remember our sin no more. Lord, you are a holy God. Help us to walk in holiness. Help us to walk in repentance. Help us to live by the power of your grace and in the power of your spirit. Help us now as we open your word, draw near to us, let us hear your voice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Please be seated. I wanna ask you to open up your Bibles to the book of uh, Philippians. Uh, Philippians chapter one, if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now to help you out with that, just raise your hand and if you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. If you just left yours at home, then you can just leave it on the table on your way, on your way out. I don't know what you were planning on doing this morning, but I was not planning on being here. And I'm, I'm, I gotta be, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to say I wish I was somewhere else, but I, I was planning on being at Dante Alighieri School at Dufferin and Lawrence at visiting our church plant, Hope Church Toronto North. And uh, those of us who have children in public school or those who are teachers or administrators in those public schools and Catholic schools, you, you know that there is uh, a pretty significant labor dispute going on right now. And uh, late on Thursday, uh, Pastor Marvin got a communication from the school board that uh, this particular weekend, they had canceled all of the contracts until this, this uh, labor dispute had been resolved. And so uh, we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters at uh, Hope T. North. We love them very much. Those of us who were involved in planting this church 10 years ago, imagine 
two or three weeks into starting losing access to your facility. And, and God must be doing something far more abundantly than all we could ask or imagine. And we're trusting in that. Simply based off logistics and geographical proximity, they, most of them gathered down at uh, Hope Church uh, Toronto West, down there in Etobicoke. And uh, so they're um, there with Pastor Jason Mata and Pastor Marvin is down there. But the reason why I'm uh, telling you this is just asking you to, to pray, uh, to pray that obviously we want this labor dispute to come to a, uh, to a conclusion for multiple reasons, for all of the staff involved and, the, and all, of the, all of the children involved, but also for, uh, for our church plant as well as an added incentive to, uh, to pray that this would be resolved quickly. So all this week, I have been thinking about going to Hope Church Toronto North. And Pastor Marv has been doing a series in the book of Philippians at that church. And I was getting ready to speak at that church. And so all week long, I have been studying a passage in Philippians as a part of that series. And so I am trusting right now in the sovereignty of God. As I said, I was not expecting to be here. But the sermon that I have been preparing all week long has been from Philippians chapter 1, verses uh, 21 to, sorry, 27 to chapter 2. Verse 4, and so I'm trusting the Lord that this is what God has for us today. I was hoping that the title of the message is called Striving Side by Side. And I was thinking about going down there to, to Dufferin and Lawrence, to the church plan, and saying, Hey, Hope Church Mississauga and Hope Church Student, we're striving side by side. We're in this, you know, together. And, uh, but maybe we need a reminder just ourselves. Before we think about going to help Hope Church Toronto North, maybe we need to be thinking about what it means for us as a church to be striving uh, side by side uh, together. I'm going to read uh, the passage, Philippians chapter, uh, chapter 1, beginning at verse 27. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but for your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul had started the church at Philippi. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16. He started when, when he uh, met a, a woman named uh, Lydia and she became a follower of Jesus Christ. And then she began to spread the word. Word eventually spread to this, this, this little girl who was enslaved in two ways. She was, she was a, a physical slave. She was the property of someone, a resident of Philippi. And she was also enslaved. She was demon possessed. 
And so she, she, was, she was enslaved on two fronts, spiritually enslaved and physically, politically enslaved. And she was miraculously set free from the demon that had been oppressing her. But her, her slave owners were not happy about that. And so they dragged Paul before the, uh, before the leaders of the city and Paul was thrown in prison. But that night Paul's praying and the people that he's with, they're praying, they're singing songs, and, and then all of a sudden they get broken out of prison. And the jail guard himself gets saved. Paul spent some more time with them and then moved on to the next city. And when we come to the, the circumstances under which the book of Philippians is written, Paul finds himself in prison again. Except this time he didn't get broken out. The next day, or that night, a day went by, and two days went by, and three days went and then a week went by, and then, and then months have gone by. And the people of Philippi were starting to get confused. They're like, the last time Paul got thrown in prison, that was like an eight-hour problem that got solved quite quick. And now, why isn't he getting broken out of prison again? What is going, what is going on? Has God... Is, has God decided to punish Paul? Is Paul somehow rebelling against God? Is the blessing and favor of God, has that been taken away from Paul? What is going on here? And so they, they send him a care package and they ask him some questions like, Paul, what's wrong? Why hasn't God broken you out of jail like he did before? And so the first part of Philippians chapter 1 is just Paul explaining that it's okay that he's in prison. In verse 12, it says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul's in prison. He's just sharing the gospel with everyone in prison. And, the, and it's, beginning to, it's beginning to spread. The prison guards are getting saved. And then even Roman officials are getting saved. And Paul is trying to remind, he's telling them about his situation, uh, about that it's okay that he's still in prison. But then in verse 27, there's a transition. He stops talking about his situation, and now he's talking about their situation. Because when, when the messengers came to bring Paul the care package, they also brought a message saying, you know what, things in Philippi aren't going so great, Paul. People got questions about you and how you're doing, and why you're still in prison, and also there's a lot of like division and, and infighting. And so Paul writes to them because he's concerned about their unity. You can see that he's making an appeal to them to be united. At the end of verse 27, he talks about being firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. He wants them to be united. Down in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. You got this idea that he wants them to agree with one another, to have the same mind. One mind in verse 27, same mind in verse 2, one mind again in verse 2. It's an appeal for the church at Philippi to be a united church. And he really appeals to them in, in two ways. The first one is, is this. The, he appeals to them based off the need for unity. That they need to be united because they find themselves in a hostile atmosphere. And so if you're taking notes today, you can jot that down. The need for unity 
a hostile atmosphere. It's a hostile atmosphere. The Philippian church had been experiencing persecution when there was immediate opposition to Paul when he was there, and that opposition continued when Paul left. And in verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let the way that you live be worthy of the gospel. The gospel, it, it's the good news. It's the message of who Jesus is, the Son of God who came from heaven and what he has done. He suffered and died on the cross as our substitute to bear the punishment, the wrath of God, so that we could receive forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of what Jesus has done for you. Now, don't get it backwards. Because so often we think that I need to live worthy and then I'll receive the gospel. Then God will forgive me if I show him how hard I'm working or how righteous I'm living. That's totally backwards to what the New Testament teaches. It's not that we reach up to God, it's that God has reached down to us. It's not live righteously so that you can earn the gospel. No, it's live righteously because you have received the gospel already. It's interesting, there's a footnote in my ESV Bible. Do you have it there beside the word worthy? And, and, and if you follow the footnote, it, that phrase, let your manner of life be worthy, could also be translated, behave as citizens worthy. The, the word there is citizenship. Live your life like you are a citizen that Christ came from heaven, made us citizens of heaven. That's what Paul is going to get to in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. He's made us citizens of heaven. We're not trying to earn our citizenship. But we have been made citizens. And in light of the fact that we are citizens of heaven, we should live our lives worthy. And this is really important, why, why Paul is encouraging them in this way. Because as Christians living in Philippi at the time, they felt like outsiders. And Paul was just clarifying, you should feel like outsiders because you are outsiders. And when they were with their family or when they were going to work or when they were in the, in the marketplace or in the political sphere, they, they felt like they didn't belong. And Paul says, the reason why you feel like you don't belong is because you don't belong. You don't feel at home because Philippi is not your home. And if you're here today and, and, and it's difficult in your home or your workplace or in the, in, in the broader culture because you are a Christian, if, it's, if, you feel, if you don't feel at home, it's because you shouldn't feel at home. Your citizenship is in heaven. And so there's rights that go with citizenship, there's responsibilities that go with citizenship, but there's also the element of representation, that, that we are like ambassadors here in Mississauga and Milton and Georgetown and Brampton, that we are representing heaven as citizens, as temporary residents here on earth. But our citizenship, our passport is from heaven. We are sons and daughters of the king. So what does it mean for us to live our lives, our manner of life to be worthy of the gospel, for our citizenship to be in heaven? The way that we study at school 
needs to be a reflection of the fact that we are citizens of heaven. The way that we work at our jobs needs to reflect, needs to be worthy of the gospel. The way that we compete in sports needs to be worthy of the gospel. The way that we talk to our spouses needs to be worthy of the gospel. The way that we drive in traffic needs to be worthy of the gospel. The way that we treat our friends needs to be worthy of the gospel. The way that we spend our money and our time needs to be worthy of the gospel, our citizenship, our entire lives, our manner of life must be worthy of who Jesus is and what he has done. And he says, and he goes on in verse 27, he says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, he doesn't know if he's going to get out of prison or not. He says, whether I come and see you or absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Notice how he says, whether I come to you or not, Paul is concerned, and he mentions this a couple of times, it comes up again in chapter 2, where he says, if you did this in my presence, how much more now in my absence? He's concerned that they follow Jesus, not just because Paul is watching. Don't, Don't follow Jesus for Paul's sake, follow Jesus for Jesus' sake, that we are, we are so prone to align and arrange our vertical relationship with God based off of some other horizontal relationship, whether it be a pastor or a, or a youth leader or a parent or a spouse, kids who are here today, you, you, you you, you might be trying to learn about Jesus and read the Bible yourself and you're attending youth group and, and you're trying to figure all of this out. But a lot of it is just simply because your parents are watching and only it's only going to be a few more years before you know it. It might feel like forever. But in just a few years, you're going to be out on your own, making your own decisions. And what your parents want more than anything is for you to make your faith your own. Do you remember when you, when, when you were a kid and you'd go to the park and you're, you had to get your parent to push you on the swing? Do you know what I'm talking about? I know this because I got four kids. I think I got three know how to swing themselves. But I got one left that if they want to swing, I got to push them. And the Christian life is like being on a swing. And right now, your parents are giving you a push. They're reminding you to go to youth group. They're asking you if you've read your Bible. And they're encouraging you to walk with Jesus. But your parents will not always be there. And you all remember the turning point someday on the playground where you figured out this. (laughs) And what Paul wants to see happen is that these Christians in Philippi would learn how to swing on their own. That they would take personal ownership. They're not following Jesus because Paul. You're not following Jesus because of your parents. You're not following Jesus because of your youth leader. or your fault. You love him yourself. 
That's what he's, that's what he's zeroing in on here. He wants them to be standing firm, notice this, in one spirit and one mind. Those are just parallel statements. Being together, thinking the same thoughts. And this isn't, this isn't thinking exactly the same thing. He's not talking about uniformity. He's not saying, that, you know, one Christian says to the other, hey, I'm thinking of a number between 1 and 3,000. What is it? Is it 292? Yes, it is. It doesn't mean that we're always thinking the same thoughts or that we agree about music or we agree about a particular ministry philosophy or that we agree about uh, what sort of educational path we should have our kids on. It doesn't mean that we agree on all of it, but, but we have this similar mindset, and I'll explain to you what that mindset is, right, uh, not right now, uh, a little bit later. And then he says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel striving, this is the idea, it, it's a fight. The, the idea here is, is a team sport that we are all trying to put the puck in the net or get the, go, the ball over the goal line or get the runners around the bases or between the wickets, what, whatever sport, that the whole team is focused on the goal. Striving together. It's all working for one purpose. That is what we need to be doing. Striving side by side. And when we are side by side, look what verse 28 says. It produces this courage. It says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Don't be intimidated by the opposition. Paul stood his ground in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. You can read about it this afternoon. By the end of Acts 16, the very people who threw him in prison come to him and personally apologize for doing it. Paul was not afraid. He did not feel the need to retaliate when he was being attacked. He wasn't on the defensive. Like he said here, stand firm. Don't feel like you have to fight back. Don't feel like you have to retaliate. And then look what he says. He says, in the, in the middle of verse 28, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation in that from God. Paul says that when we stand side by side, when we strive together, when we hold our ground, even in the face of opposition, it acts like a sign. And it's a, it's a two-sided sign. Do you see it there? It says a, a sign of their destruction. It shows the opponents that they're going to be destroyed. And it's also a sign of our salvation. Well, how is that a sign? How is it a sign that someone is a, a sign of their destruction when we don't try to destroy them? Well, it's a sign that shows that believers actually believe what they believe. Because a believer believes that there, as we sang about and prayed this morning, we believe that there is a holy God who created all of this. And that he has called us to live by a righteous standard. And that all of us have fallen short of that standard. It's called sin. And God is a righteous judge and he will punish sin. But he has sent his son so that we could be forgiven of that sin. And when a believer holds their ground, does not retreat in fear, but also does not retaliate in the face of opposition, it is a sign 
to those who are opponents of their destruction. Here's why. Because the believer says, I don't need to fight back because God is judge. And what you're saying to me right now, you will have to give an account before a holy and righteous God. You're going to have to, you're going to have to stand before God and he is going to judge you based on what you're doing to me, what you're saying to me, how you're acting towards me. And when the opponents are getting all riled up and they're hurling insults and reviling and vitriol towards a Christian, and when a Christian just responds in love and grace and remains calm and doesn't get defensive and doesn't fight back, it is a sign that that believer truly believes what they believe. That this poor lost soul is under the wrath of God. This is why Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. That we need to have compassion on those who are opposed to the gospel. Because of where they will ultimately end up. And so it is a sign of their destruction. It's also a sign of our salvation. Because when we... When we stand firm and we don't retreat and we don't retaliate, we are telling a watching world that I don't care what you think about me or say about me. All that matters is what God says about me. It is a sign of our salvation. And that that salvation comes from God at the end of verse 28. And he says something absolutely mind-blowing in verse 29. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He uses the word granted, which means given, like a gift. He says there's two things that have been granted to us. One is believing and one is suffering. If you're here today and you're a believer of Jesus, a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a believer because God has given you the gift of belief. We've been studying the Gospel of John together, and Jesus said in John 6, 44, no one, comes to the, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. The ver- our very capacity and ability to place our faith in Jesus, to receive the gift that he has given, the faith required to receive the gift is a gift itself. So he says it right there. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe, so believing is a gift, but then it says, but also suffer for his sake. There is a gift of salvation, which we're all comfortable talking about and we understand, but loved ones, there is also a gift of suffering for the sake of the name of Christ. That God in his infinite wisdom allows his children to suffer for his name's sake. Now, for those, for those churches like our church, for Christians like us, living where we do and when we do, at this present juncture, this, what's being described here is mostly 
hypothetical. If we were to happen to suffer for the name of Christ. But around the world, this is an everyday reality. Different parts of the, of the world Churches are gathering, pastors are preaching, and they are preaching Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 to chapter 2 verse 4. Not, not simply just because they happen to be going through the book of Philippians. Not just simply uh, because they want to you know, make notes in their Bibles and do a little journaling. They're reading it because they're living it. Because God in his infinite wisdom has chosen to give those particular Christians, the gift, and it's, it's a gift, it's granted to those Christians that they would suffer for the name. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you or falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And in Acts chapter 5, after the early apostles were arrested, long before Paul even became a Christian, it says they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. November the 3rd, the beginning of next month, is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. The, the treatment of Christians worldwide on a political level, a family level, a social level, is the unspoken human rights crisis of our times. It's, it's rarely mentioned, it's rarely discussed. And I understand why in, in our culture, in our society, because Christians seem to have it so easy. But that is not the case around the world. 245 million Christians are living under persecution worldwide from their political leaders, from their family members, from, from other uh, religions under which they, they are living in the broader culture. This is from a report put out from an organization called Open Doors. These statistics are based off the year 2018. Our eyes were really opened around Easter time when those bombings happened in Sri Lanka and those three churches, the, 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 those were just a few of the 1,266 church buildings that were attacked in 2018. 2,605 Christians were imprisoned without trial. Pastors who would preach Philippians chapter 127 and then, and then authorities are at the door as they're preaching about suffering for Christ and then they're being taken. And these are, these are just the records that, that we actually have access to. I mean, let alone countries that would keep everything covered up like North Korea. 4,136 Christians were martyred in 2018, gave their lives 
for their faith in Jesus Christ. That's 11 brothers and sisters in Christ per day. When people living in places like this here not be frightened in anything by your opponents, striving together, that it has been granted for them not only to believe in Jesus but also to suffer for Jesus. There's such a greater weight to those words. But loved ones, as we observe what is happening in our world culturally and politically and socially, it seems that God is orchestrating things in such a way that the church in the greater Toronto area in 2019, that God is orchestrating and arranging things to give the church here the gift of suffering for his name. We're beginning to see it in the, in the legal profession. We're beginning to see it in the medical profession. We're beginning to see it in our educational system. It is coming. It may not be as severe as what our other brothers and sisters are experiencing abroad, but it is coming. There will be a cost that needs to be counted. And now is a good time for us to evaluate, are we in or are we out? Because if, if we're called to strive side by side with one another, we got to know who's going to be there. There was a time where it was culturally advantageous to go to church and to be known as a churchgoer. And there was a respectability that went along with that. It's pretty much the opposite now. So are you in? Are you going to strive side by side? Are you going to continue on the narrow way that Christ has laid out for us? Paul communicates the need for unity, a hostile atmosphere. And then secondly, the key to unity, a humble attitude. So... Obviously, our unity is very important, especially in the times in which we are living. It's very important for brothers and sisters in Christ to know where they stand and are they standing firm and are they standing side by side, ready to strive for the gospel, ready to count the cost and pay the price. But how do we do that? How do we make sure that we are side by side and not turned fighting against one another? Well, in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2, he gives the key, the key to unity, and it's a humble attitude. If we're going to survive in the hostile atmosphere, we must have a humble attitude towards one another. Verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. There's the call to unity again. Let me show you how this all fits together. The main command is there in verse 2. Do you see it? Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Also notice in verse 1. Notice the repetition of the word any. 
any encouragement, any comfort, any participation, any affection. These are the things that are supposed to motivate us towards unity. So we'll put those up at the top. Verse 1 is pouring down into verse 2. And we're not supposed to analyze all four of these things individually. Basically what he's saying, listen, if you love Jesus and Jesus loves you, and if, if, if the Holy Spirit is living inside of you, and if you have half a heart, if you have any sympathy or affection, if you're a Christian, then do what verse 2 says. Be of the same mind, have the same love, being in full accord with one mind. And then he explains, how do you do this? Look at verse 3. Notice how there's a negative and a positive. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but, here's the positive, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, that's the negative, but also to the interest of others, that's the positive. So, we've got a negative. Don't be selfish. Don't be conceited. A positive, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. A negative, look not to your own interests. And then a positive, look to the interests of others. This is how we are called to live. By not thinking about our own. Do nothing from from vain conceit. Nothing from selfish ambition. Our conversations are not job interviews. Stop talking about yourself. Stop trying to prove to other people that they should be your friend. You should just try to act like a friend to them. Try asking them questions. Rather than just pontificating about whatever particular subject you want to sound off on. Get involved in serving in the church. Not just so that you can draw attention to yourself, but to truly serve. Not out of selfish ambition. Not because you think it's a stepping stone to something else. Just serve for the sake of serving. Because you count others more significant than yourself. And don't look into your own interests. That's the next negative. But look at the interests of others. Greeting people at the front door uh, this morning and looking around this room right now, there's all kinds of people who I know are brand new to our church. Visiting our church for the first time, maybe the second time. Look into their interests. I know you're interested uh, right after the service to get out of here and make that left turn on Argentia before the, before the big line gets there. The poor newcomers don't know how hard it is to turn left on Argentia yet. So why not take a, take a moment and try to find two or three people that you've never met before and actually engage in conversation with them. To look not into your interests and what you want to do this afternoon, but think about there, there may be hurting people here who need someone to pray with them. There, may, there need, might be someone who needs encouragement. There might be someone who needs practical help. They might need a ride home and they're going right, but you'll never know if you're just concerned about your own interests we got to look into the interests of others. Consider their interests more than ourselves. Anthony, can you come on up here for a second? So glad you're here. This is actually really symbolic. Anthony's part of our core group at Hope Church Toronto North. And what we're called to do is to strive side by side. shoulder. We're beside one another. We're in this fight together. Not fighting one another. Then we're vulnerable to attack. But we got to consider our interests. Listen, if we're in a battle and I'm only thinking about my interests, what am I going to do? (laughs) 
And if Anthony and I both do that, if I try to crouch behind him and then he tries to crouch behind me, and then what are we doing right now? As we consider our interests, we're retreating from the battle, aren't we? But if we, on the other hand, if we got one another's back and say, Anthony, I got you, I got you. And then Anthony's looking into my interest and then I'm, no, no, I got you. It's okay. We're making pro, we're moving forward, aren't we? Thanks so much, bro. Love you. We're striving side by side with you, man. This is what we are called to do. To be thinking about stepping into the back, stepping in front of harm's way. To, to, to fight on behalf of our brothers and sisters, striving side by side. This is what we are called to do. This is the key to unity. To not consider your own interests, but to consider the interests of others. To get out in front. And then I, I love this. I love verse 5. I was kind of disappointed when Marv gave me this passage to preach because I wanted to preach all the way to verse 11. And, but now we're in our own church. I can do whatever I want. So, <laughs> Because look at, what, look at what he says in verse 5. He says, have this mind. Have this mind. And if we follow the flow of argument, chapter 1, verse 27 said, have one mind. Chapter 2, verse 2 says, have the same mind, one mind. But what does he mean by mind? What is the mind? Now he says in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, have this mind. Think this way. If you know anything about the Bible, if you know anything about the guy preaching right now, if you know anything about this church, you're going to know that chapter 2, verses 5 to 11 are a huge deal. That this is the mind. This is the way that we are, how are we supposed to think? We're supposed to think like this. How do we... Avoid giving into that reflex of, of hiding. How do we actually count others more significant than ourselves? It's by having this mind. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The key to unity, loved ones, is the cross. We will never truly count others more significant than ourselves until we understand that Christ served us. We will never be humble until we understand that Christ humbled himself. We will never sacrifice for other people until we know that Christ made the sacrifice for us. And so, we are going to Take in our hands the symbols to remember what Philippians 2 was about. His body, he, he was in the form of God, but he was found in human form. Equality with God was not a thing to be granted. He was equal with God. And yet he came down and took on flesh. 
And he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That flesh, those hands, those feet were nailed to a cross. The the blood that was flowing through his veins as a living and breathing human walking among us was shed for our sin. If that doesn't make us humble, nothing will. If that is not a cause to rally around and to unite a diverse group of people, nothing will. But we are called to strive side by side, not just for the sake of one another. We're called to strive by side for the sake of him. We are called to serve and to sacrifice because he served and he sacrificed. So let's bow our heads together right now. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you by your spirit. We're so thankful for your son. Lord, we pray that in this moment that we would be so filled with gratitude for your amazing grace. I pray that as we consider what it means for us to be sinners and for you to be our Savior and when the implications of what that means for us to be brothers and sisters in this great family that you are building. Lord, I pray that there would not be one hard heart in this place. I pray, Lord God, that in your mercy and in your power, you would allow every soul in this room, Lord, to see our sin and to see our Savior. And as we see Christ, that we would be sanctified, that we would be made holy, and that we would live lives that are worthy of the gospel, that as citizens of heaven, we would live in such a way that you would get glory. Oh Lord, we love you so much. We're so grateful that you came to serve us, help us to be faithful in serving others. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.